Well, I get to introduce to you today uh, our, our guest speaker. His name is uh, Malcolm Puckett, and he is with CFR, Christian Financial Resources, the uh, organization that we did our refinance uh, with last fall and who is helping us through this capital campaign called MOVE. And uh, I've known Malcolm since 2006, and uh, he's a great guy. Uh, before he went with CFR, he was the associate pastor at Avalon Church of Christ in Virginia Beach. Uh, was there for, you said, eight years? Eight years. And then before that, he was at Roanoke Bible College, uh, now known as Mid-Atlantic Christian University. And so uh, you guys give a nice, warm Chester Christian Church welcome to Malcolm Puckett. Thanks, Aaron. Well, it is good to be with you today. Always, um, always enjoyable to enjoy the fellowship as well as um, you know, share from God's Word as far as what's, um, what I think hopefully is, is relevant and meaningful for each of our lives. Um, today, you know, Aaron alluded a little bit during the communion meditation, this idea of King Solomon. And, you know, when you look back at the writings of Solomon, we're looking back thousands of years in this ancient text. And we're going to turn to Ecclesiastes here in just a minute. It uh, trails right after Psalms and Proverbs in the Old Testament, so it's almost in the middle of the book, but, uh, or the Old Testament. But Ecclesiastes is Solomon writing wisdom for all ages. I mean, one of the things he prayed for was wisdom. And as uh, Aaron already mentioned during the community meditation, you know, that's, that's what Solomon received, and he wrote down the Ecclesiastes. And I want to try to look at some of the things that he uh, suggest in that text, even for our modern age today. But the words he starts out his book with, right there within the first uh, few words, are meaningless, meaningless. Everything in life is meaningless. In the old King James Version, it says, vanities of vanities, everything is just but vain. Well, that's a pretty big bummer, if you ask me. That's, a, that's not the way I would want to start out my book if I was writing a book. I would, but it certainly gets your attention, though, doesn't it? When it says, Everything in life is meaningless. And you know, Solomon goes on writing there just talking about how that life can be so frustrating when we're trying to find meaning and purpose and satisfaction out of life. And in the first chapter, Solomon gives a couple of examples, actually from nature, that kind of parallels with that frustration. Bear with me for just a minute, because a couple of those illustrations, he says, first off, consider the sun. You know, the sun rises in the east and it races across the sky during the day only to set in the west in the evening and at night the sun races around the other side of the planet and eventually does what? Pops up again in the east only to race across the sky throughout the day to again set in the west and it just continues to repeat itself over and over again in that circle. He talks about rainwater. Rainwater, as we know, uh, condenses basically up into, evaporates up into the sky uh, from over the oceans and then races over the lands uh, to form clouds to eventually do what? Fall as rain on the land and then that water rushes into the tributaries and the streams and the rivers to do what? Flow back out to the ocean to eventually, again, repeat that evaporate up into the clouds and form rain clouds over the lands to then do what? Fall as rain and again to rush into the streams and the tributaries and the rivers to eventually flow out of the ocean to just repeat that self once again, over and over again. And I think that's a probably an accurate reflection of some of the aspects of life as we know it through nature. But think about for just a minute, because Solomon takes it one step further, think about our lives for just a minute. 
We get up in the morning, right? And we get up in the morning because why? We've got to go to work, typically. And so we go to work, and then throughout the day we do what? We labor all day long to the conclusion of our work day, and then what? We go home because we've got to eat supper. Why? Because we've got to get ready for bed. And we've got to go to bed and get to sleep. Why? Because as we sleep, we know what's coming, don't we? We know we've got to get up. We've got to get up. Why? Because we've got to go to work. And we've got to work throughout the day, all of our days, and then finally we go home at night to do what? To go and get rest. Because why? We've got to get up the next morning, right? And you see that circular pattern again and again and again. And Solomon says, if you're living for just that, if you're pursuing some things of this life in that circle, sometimes we call it a rat race nowadays, but you're going to only going to find meaninglessness, and you're going to only find frustration and a lack of happiness and true purpose in life if that's what you're living for. And so Solomon says, we need to do better. Look there, though, in chapter 2, starting in verse 3, because it's here that in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, the latter part of verse 3, Solomon kind of documents for us this, this experiment that he decided to embark on as king And notice, this is at a point, this is the pinnacle of Israel's history. Never before and never after has Israel had so much power, so much wealth, as it did in Solomon's day. So he had all the control of of the nation. Uh, They were friends and allies with many, many other foreign nations. They had tributes from all kinds of nations. They had so much power. And literally, never before and never after has Israel experienced so much wealth and influence as they did at Solomon's time. So he's at the pinnacle of the history of the nation. But notice in the latter part of verse 3, he says, I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. So it says in verse 4, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. Now, if some of the guys in the room, or maybe even some of the ladies, you've ever had one of those home projects out back, you can kind of sympathize with uh, Solomon, right? You're planting grass, you're doing trees, whatever you're doing, landscaping. If you're like me, you've hauled mulch before. We're in that season right now. Basically, multiply that times a hundredfold. That's what Solomon's doing, okay? He's doing all these projects and doing all these things. And he goes on to talk about the fact that he had... uh, He had slaves, male and female, had other slaves born in his house. He had more flocks and herds than anyone else in Jerusalem before him. Verse 8, I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers. I had a harem as well, the delights of any man's heart. Verse 9, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And in all this, my wisdom stayed with me. Then verses 10 and 11 are key verses today. He says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Now think about it for just a minute. I mean, he had the American Express gold card, the carte blanche. He could go anywhere and do anything and spend as much as he wanted. Nobody would criticize him, say anything to him. He could have it all. And this is what he says in the latter part of verse 10. He says, actually verse 11, Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had told to achieve, Everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Now think about that for just a minute. All that he'd done was like a chasing after the wind. Now guys, if, y'all had ri- if you'd driven up here this morning, you'd seen my friend Aaron Hoback out there chasing the wind, <laughs> trying to catch the wind out front. You'd 
said, what in the world is wrong? I mean, picture a grown man chasing after the wind trying to catch it, you know? I mean, it's foolishness, isn't it? I mean, if you saw me today out there when you pulled up just trying to chase the wind, you'd say, hey, somebody needs to call, you know, for some help because this guy needs help here, all right? He's lost it because that is true foolishness, isn't it? But listen, that's exactly what Solomon says. If you're trying to find meaning and purpose and satisfaction in your life with stuff, then it's like you're chasing the wind. You're never going to catch it. It does not exist that you can hold on to it. Well, that's a pretty strong message, isn't it? And I began to think about, in reading that passage, that about the things that, you know, in life that people have a tendency, all of us have a tendency to kind of invest ourselves in. There's probably a short list that I kind of created that I think about things that people say, this is what I'm going to be about. This is what I'm going to invest my life in. You know, one of the first things that came to mind is the idea of fame or popularity. That people say, you know, I just want to be popular. I want to be well-liked. I want to be famous maybe. But again, I want to... I want to be well-known, so much so that, again, that's where I'm going to really find true satisfaction in life. And I just want to throw out a pop quiz for just a minute, okay? And this is kind of the interactive part, so you raise your hand if you know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask you, how many of you, just again, I'm sure there are many of you here today, but how many of you can recite for us all 44 presidents of the United States? Let's raise your hands there if you can do that. All 44, come on now, don't be shy. How many of you? All 44 presidents of the United States. Surely you can. Somebody. I mean, think about it. These were the most popular people in their day. Well-known, well-liked in many aspects. So much so, they were elected basically as president of the United States. Now, I'll be honest with you, I can probably maybe get a third, maybe, when you get in the Fillmore's and (laughs) all the other names, you know, I begin to fall apart on those, but... Think about it. These were people who were the most popular people of their day, and yet, you know, we we don't remember them. And we don't even think about them frequently. And so, I mean, to be honest with you in thinking about it, it's probably not trustworthy where we say, if I can just rely on popularity, being famous or being well-known, well-liked, that'll give me true, lasting satisfaction. I don't know that that really resonates, does it? When you think about that aspect of it, because popularity is fleeting when you really think about it. So I kind of reject that one thing as far as something that gives us true, lasting value and satisfaction. Secondly, I can see some people saying, I just want wealth. You know, I just want enough zeros on my checking account that I know that I'm insulated from all the unknowns of life. I've just got enough wealth that can make me comfortable, not having to rely on anything else or anyone else, and just have that idea of wealth And, you know, Solomon, again, gives us a great example of that. Um, I want you, if you would, you can turn, if you've got your scriptures, to 1 Kings chapter 10, uh, a little bit further towards the book of Genesis, towards the beginning, but 1 Kings chapter 10. And it's here that the historian for all the kings of Israel actually writes for us about Solomon's empire. And he talks about how wealthy Solomon was, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to turn here, because in chapter 10, verse 18... It talks about a piece of furniture in, uh, in Solomon's throne room. Listen to what it says in verse 18 of chapter 10 of 1 Kings. Then the king, and it's talking about Solomon, made a great throne covered with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps, and its back had a rounded top. 
On both sides of the seat were armrests with a lion standing beside each of them. Now imagine this in your, in your mind's eye for just a minute. You've got this huge throne that's got a rounded back on it. It's inlaid with ivory, overlaid with fine gold. It's got these six steps on it. And it goes on to say that 12 lions stood on the six steps, one on either side. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. I mean, that's not something you just go down to Sears and pick up. You know, I mean, this is, this is a pretty nice piece of furniture, right? I mean, you've got six steps with lions on either side. You've got the armrests, the rounded back. Again, all inlaid with ivory, overlaid with fine gold. I mean, that was making a statement, was it not? <laughs> when you think about the king of Israel and that being Solomon. But he goes on talking about the wealth of the kingdom. Verse 21, all King Solomon's goblets were gold and all the household articles in the palace were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's day. Isn't that interesting? Silver? Huh. I mean, we've got all this gold laying around. Why would we make anything out of silver? You know? I mean, that's a pretty good problem to have, I would imagine. That's the problem he had. He had so much silver, gold was worthless. I mean, silver was worthless. Had so much gold. Um, so, I mean, that just gives us an indication of how wealthy Solomon was. And yet, this is what he says was essentially a chasing after the wind. I had all that wealth, and I was still not there as far as satisfaction and meaning in life. And, you know, I think about it, a modern-day example. You ever read those articles about people who won the lottery? And then people would follow them, reporters would follow them for maybe a year or two years later, and then say, hey, how's it going? And you discover they're not happy. In fact, oftentimes, people who won the lottery are sometimes worse off than they were before, wish they'd never won that. Sometimes they've just blown all that money. But sometimes, you know, they have divorce, they have issues, family problems, and all these things creep into their lives, and they're like, man, my life's miserable now, even though they've got all those zeros on the end of their account with their checking account, you know? And so, guys, I think we just got to reject the idea that really wealth... In fact, remember what Jesus said, it's harder for a wealthy man to enter into heaven than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And so, I think this whole idea of being wealthy, really giving us true meaning and satisfaction and purpose in life, really doesn't cut it. So again, not fame, not wealth. You know, I can see somebody saying just possessions. I just want all the toys, all the creature comforts. Just give me all the stuff, not necessarily the wealth, but the, the toys, you know, the things that keep us happy and entertained, <laughs> you know, and it's just the idea of having just stuff that will really help me feel more comfortable in life and maybe, you know, that sense of purpose and satisfaction. And I can see somebody, at least some people live that out, it seems like, but, you know, I got a valuable lesson when I was in college. When I was a sophomore in college, my parents gave me a brand new car, and, I mean, it was just a, a great gift, a great thing for me. I was, I, was just, I was just so moved and just, I mean, I, it was a very generous gift from them. But, you know, they gave me a brand new Honda Accord. And honestly, as a sophomore in college, I thought, hey, I've arrived. You know, it, it all goes downhill from now because I got this brand new Honda Accord. I mean, brand spanking new. You know, the oil was still golden. You know, it never gotten dirty. You know, and it's just as brand new as brand new gets. In fact, I remember the color of it wasn't just blue, it was diamond ice blue. You know, that's what the manufacturer called it. It had the little you know, metallic speckles and uh, flecks in there. And so you, know, you look at it and you think, man, that's mine, brand new. I've arrived, you know. Doesn't get any greater than this. It's just sophomore in college. That's what I thought. 
And I remember one afternoon, I was literally actually waxing it up a little bit, making it shine, cleaning the windows. A friend of mine asked to borrow it. And so, yeah, I said, okay, I'll loan it to you. Be careful with it, you know. He took it, took it out, and I got a call within about 15 minutes. He'd wrecked it. My brand new <laughs> Honda Accord. And I remember going to the junkyard to clean out with a cardboard box. They'd already towed it away by the time I'd gotten there. And basically, I remember going to the junkyard. They put it over in the corner of a junkyard. And I remember the vision of walking up on it because the impact had been so severe that it actually rippled the metal in the door and the paint had actually popped off of it, exposing the raw metal. And it was about 24 hours after the accident when I went to go clean out the glove box and the back seat, you know, my stuff. And I remember looking at the bare exposed metal, had a little bit of dew that morning, and I remember walking up to it, and what do you guess I saw on the bare metal on that door? on my brand new Honda Accord, rust. Surface rust was already starting to take hold on my brand new diamond ice blue Honda Accord. And guys, then and there, I I got a very valuable lesson that it doesn't matter how new or how shiny or how long the warranty is on it, eventually it all fades away into decay. You know, Jesus taught that in the Sermon on the Mount that Investing of things in this life where, okay, where thieves can break in and steal or where wrath or, or rust or moths can invade and destroy you know, is not really a great way to put your investments. And it was just a vivid example for me that day of how no matter how new it is, how shiny it is, you know, today's car on the showroom is eventually in a decade going to end up in the, in the junkyard. So it doesn't matter how new and and nice and shiny it is, eventually it goes that way. And so I think we have to reject the idea of both fame, wealth, possessions, because they don't last. They don't last. You know, it's funny, that imagery of the guy getting the brand new iPhone, the iPhone 6, you remember that? He's pulling out of the box and he dropped it. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that online, but he's, got, he's one of the first iPhone 6, he's holding it up and he drops it. You know, what's, why is that gulp in our throat? Because... It's that far away from being nothing, you know? And so when we try to find our hope and our purpose and our meaning in life and our satisfaction from stuff, we're going to get disappointed. We're going to get disappointed. Last thing I think I can envision somebody on my short list of things we invest in is somebody just saying, I want to live a long life. I just want a long, healthy life. Get up in the morning, enjoy life. That's the thing I want to hang my hat on. That's where I want to find true meaning and satisfaction and purpose. But you know, another lesson from my college days, when I was a senior in college, I volunteered for the rescue squad. I eventually became an EMT, worked for four years in the, in the local rescue squad system there in North Carolina. But I remember the very first night I worked, and I literally had no certification, no training. I was just an extra guy, extra set of hands. I was a ride-along, you know, and the, the guys that were trained, they were the ones in charge, and I was just there to kind of pick up stuff. You know, I, I was just there to help out, just extra set of hands. But I'll never forget that first trip I went on because there was a call came in, there was a lady in distress. And I remember showing up at her home, going in the living room, and she was in full cardiac arrest, a middle-aged lady. And I remember the, the EMTs working on her and trying to revive her and taking her to the hospital, taking her to the emergency room, the doctors working 
for about an hour trying to revive her to eventually the doctor saying, that's it. Can't do any more. And I was, I was such a novice, and I mean, it was my all first experience in that, and I began to think internally, I was thinking, that's it? That's all we can do with all the machines and all the drugs and all the education? That's it? Why can't we do more? And you know, something stuck in my mind that night, and I'd seen it when we were at the lady's home. Again, a middle-aged lady, not expecting her life to end that day. But I remember it came home to me when we were in the emergency room, when they pulled the sheet over her. I remember looking, and her toes were sticking out from the sheet. And I remembered back in the home, she was in the process of painting her toenails when she had that heart attack. And she'd only gotten halfway through. Literally, only half her toes were painted. She was working her way down. And I just remember in the emergency room, as that sheet covered her up, those toes sticking out and thinking she didn't finish. And to me, that was a vivid reminder that we think we've got tomorrow, we think we've got this afternoon, but none of us are promised tomorrow or even this afternoon. And so it's a vivid reminder to me that if we're hoping for a long life and that's what we're just living for, guys, that's not enough because we don't have that promise. We can all be called home tomorrow, today for that matter. Jesus may return. But the point I'm saying is that to place our hope in something, we can't, we can't be assured that we're going to find meaning and purpose and satisfaction. Again, Solomon calls it a chasing after the wind. If you're trying to invest in these things, then you're going to be disappointed. And that's why I think Solomon, in the conclusion of chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes, the last verses, he says, here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep His commandments. Because this is the duty of man. Fear God, keep His commandments. Don't chase after all this other stuff, because you're just chasing after the wind. Now, let me bring this home to us living here in 2015 in modern America. Because I think we've got something that sometimes we ignore... And I think there's a virus that's rampant throughout modern-day United States today among Americans. I've got the virus. You've got the virus. We all have the virus. And the virus is this. It's called materialism, greed, selfishness. I've got it. You've got it. And that virus runs rampant throughout all of us. Now, how do you know? Its, it's, it's core is selfishness, and that's just the nature of sin. But here's the thing, how do you know, how do you say, well, Malcolm, how do you know you got it? Well, I can tell you this, there's three people in my home, myself, my wife, and my teenage son, and we sit down in my living room together, guess what, there's one remote, <laughs> and there's a question of what are we going to watch? I want to watch what I want to watch, you know? My wife wants to watch HDTV, I don't even know what my son wants to watch, but it's something different, and you know, for me, I want to watch something else, and so that's the essence of selfishness and to a certain degree. Now, we compromise, we work through it, you know, it's, it's what we do, right? <laughs> but it's the nature of I really down deep just want to watch what I want to watch. And I want to do with my money what I want to do because it's my money. My time, I want to do with my time. And slowly that virus comes into my life and I forget about the moment years ago when I got into a baptistry and I said, God, you're going to be Lord of my life. You're going to be king. And everything I do, 
Everything I say, everywhere I go, I'm going to do it in light of your kingship, your lordship over me. You see, that virus makes me forget about that moment so many years ago. And that virus is rampant within me where, again, selfishness wants to take over. Now, what I want to share with you, there is a a way to inoculate that virus. And the best way you can knock that virus out, and I'm confident of this, I've seen it in my life, I've seen it in other lives, time and again, it's this, give back to God. Because when you give back to God, you're putting down a marker and you're saying, no, God is the priority in my life. And I'm going to put Him first and foremost in the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, He's what's important. Not the things of life or fame or all these things that are just fleeting, but God who is for eternity. And His kingdom is what's going to last for eternity. And for that reason, I'm going to make Him first in my life. And so, friends, what I want to challenge us today is that we remember to put God first and foremost and above all these other things. And really, in that, this MOVE campaign is a perfect opportunity to demonstrate that to God and ourselves and our family that as stewards, we want to put God first. Now, I want your attention for just two and a half more minutes, and then I'm going to wrap it up, okay? So if I can just keep you for two and a half more minutes... But within your bulletins is a commitment card. This is for MOVE campaign. If you've got that, pull that out. I just want to walk through that real quick. Because look, there are three blue boxes on this card, and they're demonstrating three ways that we can give to MOVE campaign. Now, first and foremost, let me say this. Don't fill this out today. Don't fill this out tomorrow. Because this is something for you to take back home, pray about, think about, talk about with your family, And think about stewardship, like we've been talking about today. And let me walk through this, because what we're asking is that on May 3rd, Commitment Sunday, that everybody come back, bring these prepared to demonstrate that love for God through MOVE, through this effort. So the three ways to give are, firstly, we're hoping on May 3rd to take the largest offering Chester Christian Church has ever taken on May 3rd. That's just in a few weeks. And what that's going to ask is that every family make the largest gift they've ever given to Chester. That's kind of how you get there. Math is math, right? So if everybody writes the largest check they've ever written to Chester on that Sunday, it's almost a given that it'll be the largest offering that's ever been taken at Chester. Now the great news is all those funds go down to debt reduction. They immediately reduce the debt. So that's a fantastic thing. So that's, that's the hope for that first column is what I can give on, that, on May 3rd up front as far as a kickoff gift. Now the second column there, second line is monthly giving that over the next 24 months or in the next two years, I'm going to give every month a certain amount above and beyond all my other giving at Chester. I'm going to give that amount, again, to help reduce the debt over the next two years. And then the third line there is non-cash gifts. You know, through the years, I've found that people sometimes can say, man, I'd love to give to this, but I'm kind of cash poor right now. How can I give? And a lot of times when you begin to look around, we begin to recognize we've got stuff in our lives that we can do without. And I'll give you a quick personal example when my church was involved in this particular project, I don't say this for my benefit, but just to kind of illustrate, I had a boat in my garage that we went out in every now and then. I love to go out in a boat. We're not far from the water. I love to go fishing or skiing or any number of things. But I began to realize, you know, I only went out in that like eight times last year. And our church was building a children's wing where we were looking to expand and reach more children for ministry. And I realized that that message 
that mission was far more valuable to reaching kids in a future generation than maybe going out in my boat six or eight times next summer. And so I decided to help try to give the largest gift my family had ever given, my family as a decision, this wasn't just me, my wife and my son, we decided we're going to sell the boat. We're going to give that boat away so that those funds, basically we're going to sell that and channel those funds into that kickoff offering. And that's exactly what it did. Now today, do I miss my boat sometimes? Sometimes. But 52 times a year, I can walk into that children's area and say, man, look at the difference we're making. And that's really the essence of thinking about priorities, y'all. And I say that because I, I did a campaign with a church uh, not so long ago, and a lady had inherited a plot of ground, a, res, uh, a plot of ground, a couple, about an acre of land in a residential section. She had inherited it. It had no sentimental value, really. She decided she'd just donate that to the church as a non-cash gift. You know what it sold for? $40,000. And it was just in her life. She really wasn't you know, it wasn't a critical thing for her, but think about how critical that is for the church in paying down debt and freeing up money for ministry. That's exactly what that church was able to do. And so I just want to challenge you today to pray about it, think about it, talk about it as a family. And then on May 3rd, come back prepared. Don't fill that out on the way to church. Think about it, consider it as God, making God a priority and have that conversation around your kitchen table. Because that's a valuable conversation to have with your children, with your spouse, um, that you think about what's important, what are the priorities that we're going to make. I just want you to pray for MOVE, come out to the town halls, like Aaron was saying, there's one tonight, one next Sunday night. That's an opportunity to think and, and ask questions and pray about MOVE. And then finally, come prepared to give on May 3rd. I just want to challenge you, don't chase the wind like Solomon did. He chased it in things and wealth. But as we've seen here in his, his testimony, that really the things that satisfy and give us lasting value is investing in his kingdom, investing in ministries like here at Chester. Those are the things that will last for eternity. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward as we kind of transition that time. I'm going to have a prayer, and then um, if there's anyone here today that's not made that decision to make him Lord of your life, like we've seen earlier today, I invite you to come at this time. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this church. Thank you for those that have come before, that have laid a foundation here at Chester. We pray for your blessing upon the move effort, that, Father, you'll bless everyone here with making you a priority in their lives. I just pray, Father, that you would um, be with Chester and its leadership as they look for the future and look to grow as a church and reach more souls for you. And all this we commit to you and your care. And it's through Christ we pray. Amen. Thanks, Matt.